0: Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make. But don't say we didn't warn you. And if you're looking for a great sex tragedy, that's the one right there. That's the one. Love it.
1: Can you name any other sex tragedies? No. (laughs) No.
0: A woman killed with kindness, I would call that a sex tragedy.
1: I, I would Maybe. call that a domestic tragedy.
0: Oh, well, okay. Maybe I'm conflating domestic and sex.
1: I mean, we, we all do it so <laughs>
0: frequently. So, so no. it's. But you know what? Insatiate Countess is all you need to love it's sex true. tragedies. So. Yeah, it's real good. It's real, real good. Why you gotta call me out like that, Jess? the Hurley Burly Marston show this week we are your hosts Jeff Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock uh,
1: and together we are Whamlet and this week we are talking about John
0: Marston's The Malcontent so ominous what a name thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoy this show and come back for more now most weeks we discuss a different play by our favorite guy William Montgomery Shakespeare at what we like to call the 101 level.
1: But sometimes it's not Shakespeare, man. Like <gasps> uh you know, he only wrote 38 plays
0: depending right. yeah. on how you
1: count. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But like so we got to we got to branch out. So uh yeah. you know even when it's not Shakespeare, you're still going to get all the necessary introductory stuff, which is, you know, everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff that you'll get nowhere else like our thoughts and feelings.
0: Yeah. And our opinions are cool. Like, we're so cool. <laughs> I just want to, like, establish how cool we are. <laughs> um, we're like, so cool.
1: Shut up. If there's one thing that I am learning from my students this semester, it is that I am just unforgivably uncool.
0: Unforgivably uncool. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Irredeemably uncool. Yes, I am the uncoolest. <laughs> yeah. But that's in itself kind of cool, isn't it? Or I is mean, that just the lie that I've been telling myself that being uncool is actually cool, like that hipster kind of cyclical logic. Oh, uh, sure,
1: sure, sure. I so mean. I i'm fine with it i don't need to be cool i'm like a lot older than my students but i end every class by yelling at them to get a flu shot and register to vote and they're like okay mom we get it (laughs) wear your seatbelts make good
0: choices
1: (laughs) literally what i do as they leave the room
0: Aw, you're cute
1: i care about (laughs) you Anyway, so because we're word nerds, uh, each week we draw a random device from our handy-dandy American Shakespeare Center rhetorical device cards.
0: For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's or Marston's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what is being said and how it's being said. Which helps us understand the why it is being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. So, here we go.
1: All right. Draw a card,
0: butternut. Okay. Uh, that one. This one? Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ooh. This week, the rhetorical device is Paralypsis.
1: Oh, I love it. I love it. I Yum. love it. Paralipsis.
0: P-A-R-A-L-I-P-S-I-S. Paralypsis sounds like a catastrophe that happens to your body, but it's not. It's an omission. It's a form of omission. It's drawing attention to something in the very act of pretending to pass it over. This one, I like to remember it by, this is the, we're not going to talk about your drinking problem device. And the example is from Antony from Julius Caesar. Have patience, gentle friends. I must not read it. It is not meet, you know how Caesar loved you. As in, the will. So he's bringing up the will by not reading the will. Um, which is an okay example, I guess.
1: I mean, the not going to yeah. talk about your drinking problem one is better, so.
0: Yeah, I think so. It's not Shakespearean, but it's better. It's the way I remember it. Same. Okay, so paralipsis again—it's drawing attention to something by in the act of pretending to pass it over. We're not going to talk about your drinking problem, Jess.
1: Says the one of us who's hungover.
0: Okay. So <laughs> you got me. Anyway, yeah. So uh, that's that's that. It's time for meet the contemporary John
1: Marston. This is your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so good old John Marston was baptized on October 7th, 1576 at Wardington, Oxfordshire, uh, which makes him, what, uh, 12 years younger 12 years than Shakespeare.
0: Younger. Yeah.
1: Um, so that's exciting. <laughs> uh, his dad was a lawyer. He went to school at Oxford. And by 1595, so he was, you know, 19... Um, He was in London pursuing a career as a writer. He wrote poems first and also satires, and then he turned to plays. So his career in literature began with a a foray into the then-fashionable genres of erotic apilion and satire. John Marston wrote erotica. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it, listeners. (laughs)
0: amazing it's amazing. so sexy right amazing he wrote erotica yeah i love it I'm, i love it so much
1: i would like to read it
0: yes and see if it's like sexy
1: or if it's like cerebrally sexy where it's like Same. white dudes thinking stuff is sexy but it's just like a bunch of hunting imagery <laughs> <laughs> you know
0: you know what i mean <laughs> yes. like or i mean i'd like to know what an early modern man thought was sexy is it like yeah re- revealed
1: calves
0: or you right know, right like
1: I mean are there or... actual bazoombas hanging out and being talked about or is it like and then the goddess Diana hopped on her right. steed with her
0: arrow out of whatever <laughs> yeah right is it all euphemism which yeah. would be really boring what did give me, give me the good stuff Marston
1: what did <laughs> Paul Menzer say about Venus and Adonis like the the second edition was revised maybe and it was dirtier and so the first edition was was two handed reading and the second edition was one handed reading. Do you remember this?
0: <laughs> now that you're saying it, kinda, yeah. but yeah. not not really.
1: It might not have been Venus and Adonis. That's
0: it was funny,
1: something. Though. Yeah. That man not had a
0: handed reading.
1: Right, rating. right. I wanna know if this yeah. is two handed reading or one handed reading.
0: Yes. Um,
1: <laughs> okay. So <laughs> in September fifteen ninety nine uh, John Marston began working for Philip Henslow as a playwright. Uh, he was, you know, a pretty good match for the stage. Not, uh, not the public stage of Henslow, but he was uh, part of the private playhouses where boy players performed racy dramas uh, for an audience of the city gallants and the young members of the Inns of Courts, which were the law schools. His first play is pretty much accepted as Hysteromastics, Histriomastics, let me try that again Histriomastics yeah. this is his first play which was performed either by the children of Paul's or the students of the Middle Temple again that's a law school uh, in 1599-ish it appears to have sparked what we call the War of the Theaters which is a, a literary feud between Marston, Ben Jonson, and Thomas Decker that took place between 1599-ish and 1602-ish
0: Just like the very idea of a three-way feud between these three huge playwrights cracks me up. Yeah,
1: there were other people involved as well, but like these were the big players, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Speaking of that, by sixteen oh one, he was pretty well known in London literary circles, particularly as Ben Jonson's like number one enemy. Uh, I knew Ben Jonson for a reason, right? (laughs) Fuck Ben Ben Jonson. Yeah, Ben Johnson reported that Marston had accused him of sexual profligacy, which means he was <laughs> whoring around, right? That Johnson was whoring around. That Johnson was whoring around. Uh, okay. He, yeah. So, okay. So when I was reading about this, the first thing that occurred to me was like diss tracks because here's yeah, what happened. Yeah, yeah. They were like they were like two big rappers, like Eminem and MGK. Right, Johnson and Marston. Um, so Ben Johnson, uh, he was mad that Marston was spreading these rumors about him. He satirized Marston as a character called Clove in Johnson's play Every Man Out of His Humor, and as Crispinus in Poetaster, and as Heaton in Cynthia's Revels. So he's like going after Marston. Johnson criticized Marston for being a false poet and a vain, careless writer who plagiarized everybody else. Um, and whose works were marked by bizarre diction and ugly neologism. Oh, and, shit. Right? And then Marston hits back and satirizes Johnson as the complacent, arrogant critic Brabant Sr. in Jack Drums Entertainment, and as the envious, misanthropic playwright and satirist Lampatho Doria in What You Will. So, like, they're just hitting each other with diss tracks and, like, satirical parts, and they're taking the piss out of each other, okay? In The Return from Parnassus, a satirical play performed at St. John's College in Cambridge, um, that play characterized Marston as a poet whose writings uh, see him pissing against the world. That's a quote, pissing against the world. And if Johnson can be trusted, the animosity between him and Marston went beyond these diss tracks. Uh, He claimed to have beaten Marston and taken his pistol. And uh, however, the two playwrights eventually reconciled soon after this so-called war of the theaters, Marston wrote a poem for Johnson's Sejanus, his fall in 1605 and dedicated the malcontent to Johnson um, now, I don't know. I mean, we're about to go into this play, The Malcontent. You tell me by the end of this episode if if that's a tribute and if that's a, like a reconciliation to Johnson or if it's uh-uh. yet another diss. Uh-uh. I kind of think it's another diss. Uh, yeah. And yet in 1607, he also criticized Johnson for being too pedantic to make allowances for his audience or the needs of aesthetics that's so, so like,
1: fucking real johnson hates audience yes
0: such a huge rivalry and i just love it that they kept satirizing each other in in their plays <laughs> it cracks um, me up it's so oh, true man
1: so outside of you know this poet's war. Marston's career continued to grow. In 1603 he became a shareholder in the Children of Blackfriars Company, which at that time they were known for steadily pushing the allowable limits of personal satire, violence, and lewdness on the stage. Mm -hmm. He wrote and produced two plays with the company. The first was The Malcontent in 1603-ish. Dates are fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Um, The satiric tragicomedy is question mark Marston's most famous play question mark mm, depends maybe on who you ask yeah um it's it's the one that's included in the anthologies so yes. that's that's real um the this so this play the malcontent was originally written for the children at Blackfriars and it was later ended up uh, at the globe with the king's men maybe it was stolen talk about that a little bit later uh and it had additions by john webster and also maybe marston
0: and i'm going to pause here for just a moment to say that if people don't know what we're talking about when we say boys companies james burbage richard burbage's dad had purchased uh these the part of the Blackfriars old it was a monastery he purchased it had it converted into an indoor space then uh, the neighbors in the Blackfriars' neighborhood complained and would not allow the adult company, the King's men or the Chamberlain's men at the time, that Shakespeare's company the, uh, that Burbage and Shakespeare were part of, um, they wouldn't allow them to perform in that space that James Burbage had bought. So he started renting it out to this uh, to this boys' playing company until King James, several years later, took over the patronage of that company and said, uh, fuck you, no, they can perform at the Blackfriars'. Essentially, there's more to it than that, but that's what we're talking about. So in 1606, Marston, uh, speaking of King James, seems to have offended the king um, and and then eventually soothed him. I don't know. Uh, first in parasitaster or the fawn. He satirized the king specifically, so he went straight after King James. Um, In the summer of that year, he put on a production of The Dutch Courtesan for the King of Denmark's visit with, with a Latin verse on King James that was presented by hand to the king. Finally, in 1607, he wrote The Entertainment at Ashby, a mask for the Earl of Huntington. And at that point, he stopped his dramatic career altogether, selling his shares in the company of the Blackfriars. His departure from the scene may have been because of another play, now lost, which offended the king. Uh, it seems that the French ambassador complained to King James about the disrespectful treatment of the French court to strengthen the case. He added that another play had been performed in which James, King James was depicted as drunk and incensed. King James suspended performances at the Blackfriars and had Marston imprisoned which suggests that Marston was the writer of those plays. So good job, Marston.
1: So Marston stopped writing plays. He moved in from his in-laws. He took up philosophy. Um, In 1609, he became a reader at the Bodleian Library at Oxford. He was made a deacon on the 24th of September and a priest on the 24th of December. Uh, He died in June of 1634. So good long life for for our buddy Marston. He lived to be, what, 60-ish something?
0: Yeah, and he had a career switch. I mean a, a pretty yeah. big one. Like he yeah. went from being a an erotic writer and a writer <laughs> of racy plays for boys companies to a friggin priest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so he died a priest. Wow. Okay. So uh to recap, here is Marston's uh short but uh prolific career. First, he wrote *Histriomastics* in 1599.
1: Followed that with Antonia and Melida, which is a trash play in 1599 ish, 1600 ish.
0: Also, 1599 ish, 1600 ish was Jack Drum's Entertainment.
1: And then Antonio's Revenge, which is a great play and is a sequel to Antonio and Melida, which is a trash play.
0: Following that, we've got Lust's Dominion or The Lascivious Queen by, and this is a huge collabo by Marston, Tommy Decker, Johnny Day, and William Houghton, circa 1600? Question mark? That play is so good.
1: Um, We also have Love's Martyr, or Rosalind's Complaint, which is Marston, Johnson, Chapman, and maybe Shakespeare, question mark? Uh,
0: 1601. And we've got the play What You Will in 1601.
1: And we've got The Malcontent, which is 1603, 1604-ish, somewhere in there.
0: Yep, we've got Parasitaster or the fawn in 1604.
1: Eastward Ho, which is another trash play, Marston, Chapman, and Johnson. It's, uh yeah. part of the Ho series of plays. The mm-hmm. other two are northward <clears throat> and uh westward. Westward? Yeah, westward.
0: I think it's west. Yeah. There's not a southward. No. No one goes south, no. silly goose. No. Uh, then we have the Dutch courtesan in 1605.
1: Followed by The Wonder of Women or The Tragedy of Sophonispa,
0: 1606. And last but not least, my very favorite in the Marston canon, the Insatiate Countess, which was a collabo between Marston and William Barkstead, which begins with the line What shall we do with this Countess's dark hole? <laughs> uh, yeah. I love it. It's 1608 is that one. 1608, <laughs> 1609 so naughty oh my god it's so naughty and it's Mm. such a good play well john marston that was your life your long long life strange action-packed life yeah dude good on you all right so we're getting into summaries and dramatis persona and we always like to start that with a five word unhelpful title for the malcontent this week my five word unhelpful title is Aurelia's got two side pieces nice um which is basically the only information I picked up on a first read of the play <laughs> was that that was very clear to me the rest yeah. I was confused by and had to read again sure
1: uh I'm gonna go with Joanna
0: disguised Duke because <laughs> we got one in the slide <laughs> why yes yes I do want a disguised duke oh
1: good good well you're gonna get one I love uh, the disguised duke
0: trope you're actually gonna get two yay uh,
1: alright so let's do the DP but you know only the important
0: ones uh, so first is Malivole or Malevoli or, or Malivoli Malivoli certainly not malevol not malevol <laughs> Malivol the uh, aka the deposed duke alto fronto of genoa
1: and then we have maria his wife
0: we've got pietro the Ustering current duke of genoa and aurelia his wife mm-hmm. we've got are we saying chelso because he's italian um kelso chelso i would prefer chelso well it's italian so i would yeah. think chelso as well yeah so it's chelso a friend of alto frontos
1: and then we have mendoza who is pietro's adopted heir and also aurelia's side piece
0: right then we've got fernese a young courtier with the hots for aurelia aka her second side piece mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so jess why is this place so goddamn popular i mean it's not at, at, not all. at all it's not no.
1: full stop uh, I mean, it, it gets anthologized because I guess it's a good representative play for Marston's canon. I don't know. I mean, it's not great. Frankly, Antonio's Revenge is better. Lust Dominion is better. Insatiate Countess is better. I
0: don't know. Disguised Dukes, man. Yeah.
1: People. Well, people it's had it- a...
0: It's had a... From, like, 2002, it's had... Maybe three or four productions of note that That's I read it. about. All right. Yeah, um, most recently, uh, 2014 they did it at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse in London, which mm-hmm. is the
1: of course they did,
0: which is their indoor playing space attached to the Globe, um, and they did it with the Young Globe players or the Globe Young players or something like that, their youth company basically. So they cool. took it back retro to a uh, young company. Uh, to see how that went that was 2014 um and a few years before that i think in 2010 we did it at the asc probably in the mm. run season sure um so but it's you know still clearly you know it's maybe like it pops up from between 2002 and 2014 like maybe three or four times all righty well yes, yeah.
1: should we do a summary
0: absolutely fucking It's summary time. We
1: will now summarize the malcontent for you in a segment that this week we're calling Here are Two Boxes. One has poison in it. The other has a summary of the malcontent. That's going to be funny for you when we get to that part of the summary. (laughs) 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 It's not funny for you now, but... Not yet. The payoff is later. Maybe I should say it again at the end of the summary.
0: (laughs) Here we go. Act one. The court of Duke Pietro of Genoa is abuzz with talk of their mysterious new guest, Malavole. And while he's not in his chamber performing terrible music, Malavole spends his time openly criticizing the court and its courtiers, steadfastly refusing to engage in any sort of flattery. And while this earns him, you know, the ire of many, he is embraced by Pietro as he behaves like a real person. Having earned Pietro's trust and respect, Mallevol reveals that Pietro's wife, Aurelia, has been carrying on an affair with Pietro's adopted heir, Mendoza. <laughs> Sorry, this is already feeling like a telenovela. Anyway, uh, Mallevol further incites Pietro against the pair by declaring the situation unnatural because cuckoldry is a creation of woman rather than God, and by calling the adultery incestuous. And as the enraged Pietro rushes off to confront Mendoza... Malavol meets with his friend Chelso, and it's revealed that Malavol is in fact Alto Fronto, the former Duke of Genoa, deposed in a political coup staged by Mendoza on behalf of Pietro that made, uh, sorry, made powerful through an alliance with Florence, solidifying his marriage to Aurelia. My God, such betrayal. Malavol, with his help of his spy, Chelso, has been learning the strengths and weaknesses and secrets of his enemies, biding his time in the usurper's court until the opportune moment to strike presents and while Malival schemes in genoa his wife maria has been imprisoned and is faithfully awaiting his return
1: meanwhile pietro confronts mendoza accusing him of treachery and adultery and threatens to kill him because yeah sleeping with your wife mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna get shanked bro so mendoza knows that Aurelia has not only been faithful with him, Mendoza, but also with the courtier Fernese. Uh, So he shifts the duke's attention by revealing Fernese's treachery, and then convinces (laughs) the duke to break into Aurelia's chambers, because if he should find Fernese there, and Fernese attempts to flee, then that is proof of their adultery. So for the most part, Mendoza's plan works, but Fernese... Is not killed, but he escapes, um, and he's injured.
0: Act three: the wounded Fernese seeks out Altafronto, seeking aid and protection, both of which the former duke gives him. And later, Mendoza and Aurelio plot to murder her husband Pietro, with Aurelia promising to use her influence with Florence to have Mendoza appointed Duke of Genoa after her husband's death. So now she's in on it. Mendoza approaches Malevol to carry out the murder while Pietro is away hunting. Malevol accepts the task and gives Mendoza two boxes, both of which contain fumes. The fumes of one box cause anyone who inhales it to fall asleep, a death-like sleep for 12 hours. The fumes of the second box cause instant death.
1: There's the title and- of the summary.
0: Boom. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that is his genius plan for killing Pietro is with one of these two boxes, the death box or the sleepy box. Mendoza is impressed by Malevoli's willingness. Mal- Malivol, Sorry, it's been in my head.
1: Do whatever. It's fine.
0: Okay. Mendoza is impressed by this. And he divulges his whole master plan to, to Malaville. And after Pietro's murder and his dukedom is secure, he says he will publicize her infidelities and then have her banished. So he's going to double cross his side piece, making room for him to take Maria, Malivol's wife, as his wife, in order to solidify his claim over Genoa. But through Chelso, malavol knows that Maria, who is still faithful, has no part in any of these schemes. So he suggests they manufacture a witness to testify to seeing Pietro uh, throw himself into the sea in order to avoid any implication in his death and bolster Mendoza's cl- claims of her infidelity. malavol finds Pietro and then informs him of Mendoza's plot and then he, Pietro, disguises himself as a hermit and directs him to testify to witnessing his own death.
1: Malleville disguises Pietro as a hermit oh, okay. and directs him to testify witnessing his own gotcha. death. Gotcha. He
0: dresses him as a yeah. hermit. Okay, thank you.
1: It's a, a key detail, sorry. The, the pronouns <gasps> in that There's... sentence are shitty. Yes, yes. <laughs> I
0: didn't write it. It wasn't me. Coming into Act 4, hot.
1: Pietro fakes his own death. He laments Aurelia's repeated adulteries. He is disguised as the hermit and goes to Mendoza and is like, I totally saw Pietro kill himself, but he is Pietro. It's like a whole thing, okay? Disguised dukes. Upon hearing this, Mendoza immediately exiles Aurelia and orders malavol to deliver terms of marriage to Maria. He also instructs malavol to murder the hermit who brought the news of Pietro's death, which is actually Pietro, K. Okay? And at the same time, he orders the hermit who brought the news of Pietro's death who was actually Pietro to murder malleable This is it's complicated and tricky. Okay, so the pair together subsequently encounter Aurelia outside Genoa, where she is super sad over Pietro's apparent death, and she's also guilt stricken over her infidelity mm-hmm. because women. Malvol counsels forgiveness, and Pietro acquiesces. They're happy. Maria is proved faithful when she rejects Mendoza's offer of marriage because she's the chaste woman in this play and, you know, knows that Alto Fronto is her two husband. So that's where we are in Act 4.
0: <laughs> both dukes disguised, both reconciled to their wives. Okay, yeah. Act 5. Recognizing that the only remaining figure capable of challenging his power is Alto Fronto, Mendoza uses the lethal box given to him by Malivol to poison him. And though the box turns out to be totally empty, Alto Fronto, AKA Malaville fakes dying. So then Mendoza incu- accuses Maria, his wife of murdering the hermit, the disguised Pietro, to which Maria responds, she would rather die than marry a usurper. Mendoza then throws this weird, masquerade Ball to celebrate his rise to power, and in attendance are all of his supposed victims. And at a particular time that they've all agreed on, Alto Fronto, Pietro, and Fernese all reveal themselves. Surprise! And Mendoza's schemes are brought to light. And then Alto Fronto takes his rightful place as duke, Mendoza begs for his life and is exiled, and Pietro and Aurelia are reconciled. The end? The Shovey end. The <laughs> end fucking weird play it's a weird weird play play. it's a weird play like nobody actually dies there's just lots of plotting (laughs) disguise and fake death disguise and yeah and fake dying yeah wow so let's talk about it let's unpack this weird ass text a little bit if we can Yeah.
1: let's try so a thing that we did not put in the summary is this play has a weird ass induction I love it. But, but go ahead. I mean inductions I think all inductions are weird. I'm never gonna be yeah. like that play has a totally chill and normal induction. No, all inductions are fucking weird ass.
0: They are, yeah. They um
1: are. this one is particularly strange <laughs> yes. um because the characters in the induction are Richard Burbage and Henry Condell and Will Sly. So they're The characters are actual actors in The Kingsman. Right. Um, Playing themselves. Playing themselves. It's so great. It's very, it's it's meta. And they're, they talk about how the play, like they stole this play as revenge for a play that was stolen from them. It's, it's weird. It's weird. This is a weird induction. I know you're going to talk a little bit
0: more about it. A little bit, but for different reasons. So go it's,
1: ahead. It's, well, I mean, that's, I, it's weird. It's fucking weird. And I don't know what to do, but I, I never know what to do about inductions. I think they're weird because they don't, I mean, like the induction for Shrew is kind of a frame. Like it kind of sets up a frame that goes away. This doesn't, this is not, this is not a framing device. It's just like a weird little pre-play that has nothing to do with the play Except it does, cause it's talks about... oh uh, the inductions right. weird. Inductions are weird. It's weird. It's weird. It's weird.
0: Moving on. Yeah. For for our listeners who don't quite know what we mean when we say induction, can you? Yeah. I know, quick... cause they're weird. Um, okay. No, so like the
1: uh, inductions are short scenes that come at the beginning of plays and usually have no bearing on the play itself
0: like they're weird yeah. basically they they frame the play as a play within a play i suppose
1: i don't this one doesn't really do experience. that does it
0: well i mean it frames it as a play for
1: sure talking.
0: not necessarily it's not a play, a, play within within a play within a play like the one but, for shrew um, it's a play within a play right i get that right so yeah usually it's like a meta theatrical device that very clearly frames the play as a play yeah yeah so weird they're weird they're strange and often they're just sort of left dangling like i Mm -hmm. I have yet to see a play from this period that that like wraps it up with a i don't even know what you would call the uh, the the bookend to an induction is it like a Post induction, I mean, well, it a. would be
1: <laughs> I, it would just be a frame. I think at that point it would be like right. the the resolution of the frame. But right, I can't. I mean, Those not rarely, a whole lot of they like they happen. don't. First of all, not a lot of plays have inductions, uh right. and second of all, when they do, they don't get tied up in a neat little bow ever.
0: Right. They're, so yeah, they're not resolved. They're weird. So, they're weird. Yeah, they're very strange. Yeah, very strange.
1: So the other thing that I want to talk about are the the comparisons from from this play to some other plays. If you are familiar with, uh, well, first of all, okay, I hate this, this, I hate this, I hate this. <laughs> Let me say what I hate. Let me finish a sentence. The way that we, and this is just sort of the collective we, not just you and me, Jess and Aubrey, but sort of all all people in whatever the way that we locate non-Shakespearean drama through Shakespeare makes me bonkers I understand why we do it because it's a, it's a cultural touchstone and people who don't know the other plays do know Shakespeare so I it's it's sort of it's a handy reference point, but right, I hate it. Right. I hate it because Shakespeare is great, but he's not all that in a bag of potato chips. He's just kind of a bag of potato chips. And voila, the dramatist. I just like there are other good dramatists out there, and we should all know all of them. Is what I'm trying. False. to False,
0: fake news. <laughs> anyway, there's no one else.
1: <laughs> so all of that said, I'm about to use Shakespeare as a reference point for this play. If you out there listeners are familiar with uh, Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure or As You Like It, this trope of the disguised duke will feel familiar to you. Perhaps more so if you know um, Measure for Measure over As You Like It. It's a little bit less of a disguised duke, but it's got the usurping duke. Right. Um, right? Dukes is what I'm getting at here. But the measure for measure comparisons are particularly strong because of The motives for the Disguised Dukes, I can't wait until we do our Measure episode, either. It's coming up soon, and I'm excited about it. Mm -hmm. Sorry, my brain is just fractured, because I was like, ah, Measure for Measure. I love it so much. Disguised Dukes are a thing in this play, and also others. Also, Hamlet and the Spanish Tragedy get brought up in comparison to this play a lot, as well. See, that I don't get. I don't either, and there are whole articles about it. Like, so... I'm not sure if I have said it on the podcast, but I, I mean, I've read this, I read this play over the summer, but I had to read this play for class last week uh, mm. as well. And the, the secondary criticism that we read alongside this play is kind of all about this play, The Malcontent, in conjunction with like Hamlet and Spanish tragedy.
0: And I, I don't know. But I mean, I would think, you know, if you're looking, for, I, I guess, cause it's a, it's a guy I mean, trying to get some s- antic behavior, some
1: revenge also, but like
0: yeah, and Malibu... the revenge isn't
1: super like it's not m- bloody or murdery,
0: right? You and, know, it's and... it's
1: outwitting basically,
0: right? And Malival like puts on a different persona, which is a thing that Hamlet does, I guess. You know, yeah. antic disposition kind of thing, but, but like
1: it's not really antic; it's just. Yeah. a disguise like this is more right. of a of a duke what's his ass for
0: measure yeah so i i don't know that's kind of where the comparison ends for me I don't yeah see it. like i don't i don't see it either but it, I don't see it like half of this article
1: was pulling parallels there's also the mask in 5-6 which we kind of glossed over in the summary right. that maybe served some of the same function as the mousetrap in hamlet Mm-hmm. um and so like maybe there's that but frankly if you're going to compare this play to a shakespeare play it's got to be measure it's got to be that or
0: the tempest in a way because sure you know, the, yeah a deposed the deposed duke with like an agenda to get his rightful place back mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you could kind of go that direction but like the tone is completely different
1: so this this uh article megan c andrews is the author's name, and it's called uh, The Additions to Marston's Malcontent, The King's Repertory, and Early Modern Theatrical Economics. And what she says about it, that measure for measure, which was completed about a year after um, the malcontent was acquired by the Kingsmen. Uh, mm-hmm. She says measure for measure was highly influenced by Marston's play. That is a direct quote, highly influenced by Marston's play. She's, she's kind of using this as a source for measure, which like, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I could buy that. I suppose that's, that's what I read to say. So this it's a weird play. There are weird things happening. There are some familiar tropes that we're seeing. That's what I have to say about it. Aubrey, why don't you take it away?
0: Okay, so I want to circle back to the induction only because I have a question about it, like a production question. So my question is, when you're producing this play, do you have your actors play Burbage and Condal and Sly and whoever else do you have them play those actors or do you replace them with actors names from your own company to Uh play themselves as Burbage and Condal and Sly would have done Uh I think they just played themselves yeah and they came out as themselves so and because of our historical distance are are you know Burbage and Condal and Sly are they characters now do we play them as characters, or are they just placeholders for actors in whoever's company is mm-hmm. producing this mm-hmm. play? I um I, I don't I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer here. I'm just really curious. If I can chime in. About how to do that. Yeah. I think spitballing here.
1: I think that the the answer might be that you you play them as Burbage and Condon, not like Aubrey and Jess. Um, because the induction serves kind of as context for how the company acquired the play, right? Like they talk about it
0: right?
1: having taken it back or whatever. And I don't think that applies if you, you replace Burbage and Condell with like Patrick Stewart and Tom Hiddleston. I also think cut the induction. If sure. you're going to do
0: it, cut the induction.
1: I hate an induction, so. <sighs> yeah, yeah.
0: I I'm mean, yeah, always going mean, to advocate I mean, for yeah. cutting it. <laughs> That is, that is the option. You could cut it. You could, but I'm, I'm super curious to know, because I think you're right. You know, the way you, Mm -hmm. what you said, that, that makes sense uh, because it does have so much to do with that time and the acquisition of that play from Marston and from Henslow at the same time, that that's not going to mean anything to an audience now anyway. Right. If I were to go into the theater and watch this and see characters who are, you know, Richard Burbage, and they're talking about, oh, we took this play from you. Ha 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 ha. Like, that's a 400 and some year old joke. Like, I don't, I'm not going to get that. So it's a, it's a question. It was percolating. I, so I'm putting it out there into the universe for the next company brave enough to do the malcontent. The next thing is, from a production perspective, and I think this is kind of fun if you are musically inclined, is that this play has a ton of songs. Uh, because it was originally written for a boy's play or for the boy's company um, and those were uh, they were shorter and they had more musical interludes and even when it was adapted for the grown-up company the king's men uh, and i think john webster was actually the one credited for that induction i don't think marston wrote that induction that was an edition by webster uh, but it just says in the text it just says song or like a mask or they dance. It's just songs. There's no very few lyrics to any of these songs. Certainly no melodies. So, you know, what are these songs? What tunes are they? What the fuck do you do with those in production now? Another question I'm throwing out there. Because I don't know. Uh, you know, would you want, to, want it to be something contemporary to our time? And throw in some pop songs? I don't know. I just think I think it's kind of hilarious honestly, how much singing and dancing there is in this very strange play, especially given how dark it is. Then you've got, you know, just on the more practical side, we've got disguises and double-crossing a go-go. As you probably noticed in our summary, even we got a little tongue-tied and confused about pronouns and like, who is he again? He did what? Who did he? So just make sure that your work is clear. If you were going to teach this, I would suggest like a character map or some something visual to help students connect which character does which thing. Some kind of way to visualize this or have them make something to visualize this because it's fucking confusing and probably less so in production, but just make sure that that is clear and that those disguises are clear. And also, and this is just something I've really learned to like about Marston in my limited Marston experience, which is the malcontent and the insatiate countess. Um, Marston does not, mince words the way shakespeare does he does not shall we say pussyfoot around sexually <laughs> explicit language yep. um he just says it he just comes out and says it well you know he's
1: got that erotica background so he
0: does um so have fun with that it is naughty it is naughty 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 and i love it so much well first of all You've got Macarel, who we didn't talk about in our summary at all, but no, she's the didn't. bod. She's the bod. She's the bod and a pander. She's the one kind of helping Aurelia out with her, with her juggling her men, basically. Um, she is arguably the best character in the play. And I told Jess before we started, she is definitely now on my bucket list. Here's why I like Mackerel. Mackerel um starts flirting with a 14-year-old page boy. And he says, my lady is up forsooth. She says, a pretty boy, Faith. How old art thou? He says, I think 14. <laughs> she says, nay, and ye be in the teens. Are ye a gentleman born? Do you know me? My name is Madame Mackerel. I lie in the old Cunny Court. <laughs> but I love this woman. I love her. I love her. I love her. I love it, too. She is my favorite. Yeah, so- she's great anyway um that's just that's all i have to say about that is that there are some delicious whore characters (laughs) in this play (laughs) i do love a delicious whore yes there's not only mackerel but then you've got bianca and what's her face her her whores yeah um who are funny too they're just a bunch of dumb whores they're really funny so anyway let's talk some shakes bubble gossip what's up yeah yeah. so first of all
1: shout out to jade in bangladesh what up girl jade Uh,
0: in bangladesh
1: like what a couple weeks ago in the king john episode uh we were like hey what up listeners in southeast asia and jade got in touch which is really thrilling and jade girl we love you, uh, and we're so glad that we can provide a little glimpse of home for you. She said she was she was from the D.C. area and also from California. Question mark?
0: I don't remember. I forget what she said. A, I remembered the D.C. podcast host part. Yeah,
1: because it was sort of where we're from. Also, basically, um, anyway. she's an
0: expat out in Bangladesh, yeah. Just doing doing the Lord's work. We heard from Kate at Seattle. Uh, at Seattle Shakes. Telling us a little more information about the Richard III production in Seattle that we Mm -hmm. shouted out during our Richard 201 episode. Mm -hmm. She just said she wanted us to know that that is an all-female production of Richard III uh, done in collaboration with Upstart Crow Theater Company there in Seattle.
1: Yeah, so, just a little cool. more
0: information about that. If you're in the Seattle area, go check it out.
1: Okay, so a couple other little bits and pieces from this week. Uh, the Globe, big, big news out of the Globe this week. So, Michelle Terriot, who is the artistic director there, has appointed yes. an associate artistic director and also what they're calling associate artists. So, Sean Holmes is joining the Globe as the associate AD, um, and he comes from the Lyric Hammersmith. And then so he's being joined by uh, what they're calling associate artists. So what Michelle Terry has said is, I am so proud to announce my core team of associate artists who will help guide and deliver on this season, as well as support the development and continuing exploration of the Globe Ensemble. So it sounds like these, these associate artists are just sort of going to be leaders, within the within the company which is i don't know i think it's a cool idea this is not a thing that we really have in the u.s um it is maybe more common in the uk twitter seemed like all of american twitter was like what the fuck is this and then all of english twitter was like oh yeah this is totally normal and fine
0: Um, right yeah well i'm familiar with associate artistic directors yeah right yeah
1: Uh, and then we also, it was announced this week, the globe is going to do Richard II at the Sam Wanamaker in the spring of 2019. Ooh. Um, and this is really fucking cool. So it's a Ando and Lynette Linton are co-directing the first ever company of women of color in a Shakespeare play on a major UK stage and it's Richard cool. too. Yeah. Uh and so this is this is what the the website says. Um so it's the first ever company of women of color in a post-empire reflection on what it means to be British in light of the Windrush anniversary and as we leave the European Union, the European Union. I don't know what the Windrush anniversary is. I'm not from there. I assume hey, it's something British
0: listeners no please drop us a line and tell us what that is
1: yeah um it continues as we play our part in defining the nation's history and we become the shoulders on which future generations will stand shakespeare asks us to consider the destiny that we might be shaping for our scepter dial which no. i think is real cool um and so then this is marking uh it's kicking off the the cycle of history plays that they're going to do over the next year so what they're saying is Richard II marks the beginning of a cycle of history plays that will provide a unique opportunity to rediscover how Shakespeare perceived this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. Our year-long expri- exploration of our sceptered isle will take us on a journey through history via Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI, and Richard III. They're doing oh, all of them dang. apparently in some kind of yeah in a year. Oh, I, oh that's, that's so really exciting! Cool. Yeah, oh my God, okay. yeah. Um, and so this is part of a festival within the season. It's called On the Shoulders of Ghosts, that's the title of the festival. Um, and it says, Our second festival of the season probes the fine, if not invisible, line between the personal and the political. So, this part, the Richard II part of On the Shoulders of Ghosts, also includes Edward II, which is Marlowe's play, and Mm -hmm. Richard II. Um, and then a play called After Edward, which is written by Tom Stewart. Okay. Uh, it is a daring new play written specifically for the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse in response to Christopher Marlowe's Edward II. After Edward welcomes us into a chaotic world of pride and shame with moments of elation, outrageous humor, and heartbreaking tenderness. Oh
0: and Maggie Thatcher I'm super intrigued and they're
1: like pull quote from the play is I think it's queer and it's about to get queerer yes. <laughs> right yes. like, I want to see this play um so that's running uh late March through early April 2019 at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse in England uh I guess in London which is also in England <laughs> if you're over there go see it and then tell us about it oh my God!
0: Or like send me some money so that I can right. go and see it, like just A subsidize my plane ticket, right? Yeah, please, yeah. yeah. totes need it for professional development reasons, right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, and then my final bit of gossip before I throw it over to you and your gossip this week is that I finished my comps reading this week. I'm done, y'all. Yeah. since the middle of january fucking i'm done i'm done i'm done son you did
0: it you did
1: it yeah so now i I just have to like prepare and take my exams
0: yeah but you fucking man (laughs) i'm i'm always just ever since we met and became classmates i have been in awe of your discipline as a student (sighs) and your ability to stick to a plan and follow it through and do what the fuck you need to do. Like I Thanks, baby. so admire you for that. So congratulations. You did it. That was a yeah. huge, how many plays was it Jess?
1: Uh, well, it was 130
0: texts. I think 130 I read texts is what something I mean. yeah. like,
1: like maybe 80 plays, 70 or 80. Yeah, something that's
0: in less than a year. So yeah. Here.
1: In, in almost exactly eight months.
0: <laughs> congratulations. Thanks. You're amazing. You are wonder yeah. woman. Tell me, tell me about your week. Yeah. So speaking of lady academic wonder women, uh, <laughs> Tiffany Stern came by. She strolled through Stanton this week.
1: I'm so jealous. not
0: only, not only did I have the pleasure of um, performing in Brats of Clarence in front of her and losing any shred of dignity I had left, um, uh, she stuck around. And uh, she gives a talk about it once a year. She comes through Stanton and, and talks to the students in the Shakespeare and performance program. And the talks are open to the public. So I visited. Um, Obviously. She, if you didn't, I would have punched you in the face and our relationship would be over. Cause Anytime. Yeah. No. Anytime T. Stizzle, Queen T herself comes through, like you need to go and listen to what she's going to say. Because usually she just drops in to be like, this is what I'm researching right now. And this is the book or the paper or whatever it is, the project I'm working on. And this is where I'm at in my research. And I love that about her. And I love it that um, students in the program get to see someone of her, you know, scholarly stature just reporting on her research. Cause it's something that you have to do when you're in the program. Um, but what was fascinating about this talk currently is that she said at the very top of her hour long talk that, her research took a huge right turn into something, something else, uh, which is wonderful. And again, it's um, go you, Tiffany Stern, for like modeling how to deal with that uh, when you find a curveball and your, when your research takes you somewhere you don't expect. So basically, she laid it out like this. Why do we privilege Shakespeare's stories saying that anything before Shakespeare's work is source material? And everything after it is, quote, adaptation, when really, you know, Shakespeare's just a plot point on a much larger timeline. Uh, And so she's, her research now is starting to complicate that idea. Um, And of course, you know, if you're an early modernist, of course, you know, Shakespeare's work or the work of his contemporaries in that period is going to be your personal starting point. But what she was basically getting at, was that there's more there's more to it than that <laughs> and and going back and then going forward in time kind of leaves you in the same spot uh or it takes you to the same place kind of like being lost in the forest and going in circles <laughs> um so her her talk was just fascinating uh and funny and always illuminating to have her around so I love her I just love it when she rolls through town I also hate it that she saw me play like a sexual deviant and a crazy Scottish king (laughs) in that play (laughs) I mean I don't hate it I sort of love it but it was very silly um so that's my first bit which was awesome so Mm -hmm. watch that space um if you're you know waiting for Tiffany Stern to drop her next book like watch watch out for that um the second thing was last night the American Shakespeare Center had its annual gala And during that gala, we always award a Burbage Award for someone who, you know, reaches out to their own community and it makes impact through Shakespeare and theater within their localized community. And there's a much better description of it than what I just gave. But basically, it's that award. So it's not like it's not like a Tony or anything, but it's a big deal to choose for us when we choose who receives the Burbage Award this year. Uh, And this year it was uh, Ty Jones of the Classical Theater of Harlem. Ty Jones is the artistic director and chairman of the board at that theater. He has kind of an amazing story um, during the economic collapse of 2008. So 10 years ago, he was an actor in the company and he stepped up and became its AD and took a leadership role on the board and pulled that theater out of the red and into the black, uh, financially, and they are thriving. And he's an amazing dude. And he came down last night with his wife in person to accept the award. And uh, what I loved about it was not only that he received it, because I- I'm not sure he would have been on our radar if we didn't have a new artistic director who knew this guy personally. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like, it's exciting that we're building connections. Um, more diverse connections already, but but what he did was talk about how he views uh, theater as his way to dismantle racism, and and he talked about not just you know representation. He's he's he was like it's more than racists. It's not an individual thing. It's institutions, and I and I think theater and classic works, the way we do them in Harlem and doing them in Harlem is a big deal to me, and you know that's it's how I. Fight to dismantle racism every day, and it was and it was not malicious or targeted at anyone in particular, but I do feel like the demographic in that room needed to hear the words that he said, and he said them so eloquently um, and and urgently and i just I got mad respect for that guy. I did not know who he was until twenty four hours ago, but it was it was a really cool thing to watch. it was an absolutely glorious thing to behold. And I, I'm all about it. Love it. It's dick bracket time. Alrighty. So we now have results from our mashups between Portia and Proteus and Dionysa and Damville. And the results are in Proteus won by a landslide. Wrong! Wrong, wrong, wrong,
1: wrong, I have feelings. You're all wrong. I'm gonna let it stand, but you're all wrong. <laughs>
0: um okay and also <laughs> d'amville beat Dionysa for who's the biggest dick in their matchup so and i think actually i think that was the correct decision i think dmville was a bigger dick than Dionysa. it was pretty yeah, close i'm okay pretty with close that but but i'm okay with that i am torn i am torn between portia and proteus still the uh the people have spoken Proteus Mm -hmm. and D'Amville are advancing to the next to the next round Um, but this week we are going to talk about Othello and Cassius uh Othello from Othello Cassius from Julius Caesar and I'm just going to jump right into that I wish it was Um, Cassius
1: from Cassius (laughs) but I wish it was
0: and Cassius from the play Cassius Lost to Time um yeah, so Othello, you know him as the guy who uh believed the lies of his supposed friend and murdered his wife uh supposing unfoundedly that she was unfaithful and on basically no evidence at all except for circumstantial evidence that Iago arranged for him to witness uh so there's that um Othello kills his wife and then kills himself. That's kind of a dick thing to do. And then Cassius, who kind of on the other side of that coin, uh, incites the assassination and participates in the assassination of Caesar. Um, but he he's the one who brings Brutus on board. Brutus, like who everyone thinks is the incorruptible, most loyal, most honorable guy. Cassius is the one who manages to turn Brutus towards this assassination plot. Cassius is the one who spearheads the assassination plot for reasons that are known, mostly to Cassius only. He just really doesn't like that Caesar and thinks Caesar's getting too big for his britches, and so he decides, let's kill him. Basically, Cassius is the man behind the collapse of <laughs> post caesarian Rome. So way to go, Cassius. So that's our first matchup. Tell us about the next one, Jess. Yeah, okay. So we've got Columbo
1: from the Cardinal going up against the Duke from Revengers Tragedy. So Mm -hmm. Columbo from the Cardinal, roll fast. His deal is that he is engaged-ish, but like not quite engaged to the Duchess. And Mm -hmm. the Duchess is a widow, um, and the Duchess does not want to marry colombo she wants to marry alvarez and colombo after some negotiation agrees to not marry the duchess and let her marry alvarez and Mm -hmm. then the duchess and alvarez are at the altar with the priest getting married and colombo busts in and fucking straight up murders alvarez
0: damn yeah that's fucked up
1: yeah so then in the revenge tragedy We've got the Duke who, before the play has begun, has poisoned Gloriana. Gloriana is dead and has been dead for nine years. Mm. And the hero of the play, Vindice, just sort of carries around Gloriana's skull. (laughs) This play is amazing. Um, Anyway, so the the Duke poisoned Gloriana because Gloriana wouldn't fuck him. Classy. Yeah. So then in Act 1, the Duke's youngest stepson has raped the wife of a a court nobleman. He's admitted to the rape. He's like, yeah, I fucking did it, and like jokes about it. And the Duke, instead of delivering justice and punishment, suspends the proceedings of the court and defers the court's judgment. And, like, goes about his business and, like, lets the... Like, the son sort of in prison, but, like, not really in prison. He just mm-hmm. kind of, like, lets him. And then the Duke proceeds to try to sleep with a bunch of women. And he contracts Vindice to, like, find him women. And Vindice is in disguise. And then he murders the Duke. It's, like, it's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the Duke is a rapist or an attempted rapist and also a protector of rapists.
0: And definitely so- a murderer. And
1: definitely a murderer. So we've got we've got two lesser known characters from lesser known plays doing Mm -hmm. some shitty stuff like murdering a dude at the moment of his marriage to a woman that you said you didn't want to marry or Mm -hmm. murder, attempt rape, protect rapists, get murdered
0: then we're done. Uh, Well, thank you so much for listening, everyone. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. And you probably know way more about John Marston than you ever thought you needed or wanted to know. But there it is. You're welcome.
1: All righty. So tune in next week for Richard III 301, our very first 301 episode. And we have a truly Really special guest for you guys, so yeah. come back oh next week. Oh my god, oh my god,
0: wait. oh my god, I can't wait. I'm so excited. So, this special guest is someone we spoke about in our Black Friars episode, which you should definitely go back and listen to episode six. And we are so interested. so so excited to have them on the show like, so excited! I can't oh wait. My god. I'm really oh my god, excited. oh my god, oh my god, oh
1: my god, okay, and a fangirl real hard. whamlet out. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play.
0: Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla, H-O-L-L-A, at com.
1: You can also find us at Hurly
0: Burly Shakes on Instagram or Shake on Twitter. I hope you will find the discretion to purchase a fresh gown for his return. Now by my troth, beauties, I would have ye once wise. He loves ye, pish. He is witty, bubble. Fair proportioned, mew. Nobly born, wind. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet, with no help from anyone, because we're poor. To read more about us, or for other podcast-adjacent materials, visit our website at hurleyburleyshakespearshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Hsu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to Jonathanshoe.com or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey, if we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. I got six six-packs in a pink Cadillac, $10,000 in a sack in the bag. It costs thirty-five. I don't aim to use back. I got no bullets, just a wheel to buy butter your nut okay oh Here.
1: oh Aubrey.
0: i'll nut your butter is that better no that's <laughs> uh, uh, i stand by it okay i'm uncomfortable i need a
1: grown-up